Welcome to the fifth season of Better News, a series of special podcasts It's All Journalism is producing in partnership with the American Press Institute. I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Better News offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. The effort is fueled by the American Press Institute and the Knight Lenfest Local News Transformation Fund. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight some of the useful research the American Press Institute has published as part of its Better News initiative. If you want more information about the initiative, visit betternews.org. Benji Eagle is the food and beverage reporter at the Sacramento Bee. He recently published a cookbook entitled Sacramento Eats, which features 160 pages of mouthwatering dishes from Sacramento's most popular eateries. Benji recently wrote a study for Better News in which he shares his successes and some of the lessons he's learned while reporting and writing the book. Benji, welcome to the Better News Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I always like to ask journalists who are, are in a particular track or a focus, you know, which came first for you, journalism or food and beverage writing? Well, as I like to tell people, I've been eating my whole life, but the journalism part definitely came first. I started in high school as a sports intern for our local newspaper, just covering high school sports, little league, that kind of thing, and kind of found that I had an interest in it. And so I went to college and studied journalism at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, where I covered sports, but also, you know, politics and science and, you know, other, other beats that we had at the campus newspaper. From there, I graduated and went to Amarillo, Texas, where I was a business reporter for a year before being hired at the Sacramento Bee as a breaking news reporter. And so I felt like I had a good range of different beats under my belt at that point for where I was in my career. After six months, an editor pulled me into an office and said that they were looking for someone in the newsroom to take over the food and drink beat, first as a trial and then maybe as a long-term thing. And I was getting in at 5.30 a.m. every day covering homicides and fires and all kinds of other grisly stuff. And they were offering me relatively normal hours covering restaurants and bars. So it was a no-brainer. I took that, did the trial period, and it went well enough that five or six years later, I'm still on the beat. Cool. You gave a good reason why you switched to that. The hours were better. But, you know, what's the best thing about being a food and beverage writer? And actually, what's the worst as well? I genuinely think that the people on my beat are some of the most interesting people in the city where I work. It's a lot of folks who have different backgrounds. For a lot of them, they were just not going to gel with a nine to five office job. And so there's a lot of characters. You get some spicy quotes, you get some drama behind the scenes, you get some interesting stories. And I also think that for my region in particular, Sacramento's food scene has just grown so much in the last decade that there's a lot of really interesting stories to tell. I feel like I'm never short on stories. It's just a matter of how much I can get done in a given week. The drawbacks, there's not too many, but I will say that, you know, one of the best parts of the job, of course, is getting paid to go out to eat and getting your meals comped and all that. Sometimes you just want a night in with some takeout Thai food and you don't want to drive 40 minutes each way to go to a fancier restaurant. And I know there's a tiny violin playing for me somewhere, but sometimes that just feels like it's your whole night. And uh, some weeks that's four or five nights out of your week. So it can be a little hard to have the balance that you might have in a more traditional job, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah, I would imagine that there are demands that you, you have to cover certain things at certain times. So at the beginning, you said that you've been eating all your life, which is an excellent line to start with. But I mean, was there anything in particular you did to sort of prepare yourself to make yourself an authority in some way? Absolutely. When I first started on the beat, I was, you know, a little in over my head and I didn't really feel like I had I guess, a base of knowledge comparable to the people I was interviewing or, you know, even some of my readers who are more accomplished home cooks. I always had an interest in cooking. I started a cooking club at my high school and I like to, you know, prepare nice meals for myself at home. But when I took over the beat, I really made an effort to immerse myself in food media, watching Netflix shows about food, reading books about it that, you know, cookbooks, but also books by chefs, I guess, you know, about their lives and the restaurant industry and those sorts of things. So I, you know, I really made an effort to immerse myself in that and also just go out to eat as often as possible and try and think with the a food reporter or food writer's brain as opposed to just a normal diner. Think a little more critically or, you know, about what flavors in particular I'm tasting and try and build up my palate and knowledge base that way. Okay. You sent me your picture. I guess probably your picture's on the book. And, you know, I've I've interviewed food reviewers who hide their identity because they want to be able to go into some place and not have somebody prepare something special for them. Have you, have you ever had to deal with something like that? Yeah, every so often. I felt like when I started this beat, it was just going to be too difficult to scrub my identity from the internet. I'm a millennial and, you know, I started having social media in, in junior high or high school or something. There are just pictures of me out there and it is what it is. I will sometimes see at restaurants that folks do recognize me. My picture is also in the B every week as part of my column. So look, it's out there. When I do get recognized, I, you know, will encourage the restaurateur to treat me just like anyone else. And I'll look at the other tables to see how they're being treated. If I think that I'm getting special treatment. More often than not, though, if I am recognized, it comes at the end when I'm paying and they see the name on my credit card because... I'm not on TV. I'm not posting my face all over social media now. They know my name a little better than they know my face within the local restaurant industry. Okay, that's cool. And I know you just talked about how you prepared. I mean, how, this is going to be an odd question. How good an eater are you? I mean, are there things that when you entered into this, you're like, oh, I know this is going to be tough because I don't like this food or I won't eat that. Or are you pretty adventurous? I consider myself a very adventurous eater. I will eat pretty much anything. I have only a couple of things that I really don't care for. Despite being a native Californian, I can't stand avocado. Oh my God. I'm on that. I'm on that train. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> and then, you know, I, uh, I, I'm afraid of snails, so I won't touch escargot. But other than that, really anything is fair game. I'll eat organ meats or insects or, you know, whatever gets put in front of me. As long as it's, I, I mean, to me, it's always, is this, being done for shock and awe or is this an actual cuisine sort of thing but yeah i consider myself a very adventurous eater i love trying new restaurants and restaurants from different backgrounds or cuisines so i feel like a lot of the people i go out to eat with eat a little more reserved now i'm always the one like pushing them oh let's try this one let's get this we don't see this on many that often that kind of thing so you spoke a little bit about uh, Sacramento cuisine. Is Sacramento a food city? And, you know, what, what is its cuisine? How would you describe it? Yeah, at this point in time, I would consider Sacramento a food city. And that's part of why I wanted to write the cookbook to bring that to people's attention outside of the region. Sacramento, there are two things that define its food scene. One 
is the Farm to Fork movement, which Sacramento adopted the name of the Farm to Fork Capital of America about 10 years ago. And a lot of that is marketing or shtick, or as I say in the book, more tagline than tagliatelle. But we're also in the Central Valley of California, and there's a lot of really great local produce that comes out of this region. And so a lot of the chefs are working with small local farmers to get some pretty incredible produce, get things that are fresh and in season. And as the Bay Area has gotten increasingly expensive, people have moved to Sacramento two hours east of San Francisco. So we've got some really top-notch chefs as well uh, that really know what to do with those ingredients. So that's been really great for the dining scene over the last 10 years. The other thing that to me defines Sacramento's food scene is that it is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. At one point, Harvard called it the most diverse city in the United States. And so depending on where you go, you could end up in a neighborhood that's predominantly Vietnamese or predominantly Latino or Middle Eastern or Eastern European. And the restaurants of those neighborhoods reflect that. And now we're seeing more attention drawn to those places and sort of modernization of those places where they're being brought up as, I guess, more hot cuisine and people are taking an interest in that, which is great to see as well. So where did the idea for the book come from? I've been on the beat for five or six years now, and I had wanted something that would sort of encapsulate the modern dining scene and be something that people in the region could really be proud of, but also something that would introduce Sacramento's restaurant and food scene to people outside of the region. And as much as I interview local chefs and bartenders and tell their stories with my own words, I felt like the time was right to let them tell their own stories through food and drink, through the recipes that have made their restaurants iconic or the dishes that they cook for their families at home, which we have in the, the cookbook as well. I was asked by my editors at the Sacramento Bee to do sort of an overarching project of some sort. And I pitched this story to them or this, this cookbook to them as that sort of project. I was also in the Pointer Coke Media and Journalism Fellowship at the time. And they had asked us for something like a capstone project to cap off our, our fellowship. And so this had been an idea I was kicking around for a couple of years. It seemed like the time was right to try and make it happen. And once I got the green light from both of those organizations, I figured no time like the present. I'm thinking of other newsrooms or journalists who are thinking about you know, oh, this sounds like something really good. If we could, we could highlight the restaurants, the the chefs in our community, that would be a way to sort of, you know, build a closeness with the community, connect people with with part of the local culture. Now, you said that the chefs got to tell their own story. So, is it sort of a collection of interviews and profiles along with the recipe, and then them sort of explaining what the recipe means to them, and you know, using that as a vehicle to sort of open up that avenue? Well, we collected recipes and there are 60 of them from 60 different restaurants. We collected those recipes through a Google form and we left space for folks to tell us why they chose this recipe, what meaning it had to them or their restaurant. For each restaurant, I wrote up about a paragraph explaining to someone who had never been there before what they're all about and who the chef or owner is, you know, what sort of defines that restaurant. And often I would use the things that they told me in the Google form to inform that. Oftentimes it was also just my knowledge of that restaurant from being on the beat. But when I talk about them telling their own story, it's really through the food. It's through those recipes. We also have color photos for each of the recipes. A lot of those came from Sacramento Bee photographers who were assigned to the project. Some of them came from the restaurants as well. They had already shot good looking images. 
the recipe was their avenue, their vehicle to tell the story of the restaurant through food. You know, I've used Google Forms to gather information from, from sources on particular topics before. Are there any sort of, I don't know, legal or any sort of hurdles with publishing a, a recipe? I would imagine somebody who is famous for a particular recipe, you know, maybe they're thinking about one day they're going to do a, a cookbook or something. Was there any type of that feedback that you got to it? That we don't necessarily want to share it. Or were they all open to it? So the Sacramento Bee and McClatchy do employ a legal team, and they definitely took a look at the Google form before it was sent out to the restaurants. We had a line in there where basically they were granting us legal permission to republish these recipes, not only in the cookbook, but also in the print Sacramento Bee, which we've been doing. For example, we published a macaroni and cheese recipe leading up to Thanksgiving that also encouraged people to then go buy the book for the other 59 recipes. Overall, I felt like the chefs I talked to were really eager to share their recipes and be part of the book. I can count, I think on one hand, the number of chefs who politely told me they weren't interested in participating. For the most part, chefs were pretty interested. I think a big part of that was that we would ask some restaurants or bars for one specific cocktail or one specific dish. I'm thinking in particular of the white linen cocktail, which is sort of the iconic Sacramento cocktail from one bar in particular. But for the most part, I would just say, hey, we could use an appetizer, a soup, a sauce, or a dessert. Can you send me one of those? And they would get to put their heads together and think about what would be the best fit. And so they could sort of decide on the dish that they wanted to give up. I remember talking to the chef and owner of Localis, which is a Michelin-starred restaurant in town. And he said that, yeah, you know, I read the email very closely to see if you wanted our octopus recipe, which I'm not going to give away. But... You said any recipe. So I said, oh, what about duck two ways? And I said, yeah, that's fine. You know, so because they had some agency in that, I think that a lot of restaurants were really eager to participate. And it was pretty easy to get yeses from them when I asked them to submit recipes. I would imagine on some level, some of them were probably, oh, if they can make this at home and they like it, maybe that will bring them into the restaurant. It'll, it'll help to get the restaurant out there to a wider audience. That's certainly true. And that was something that we were looking for. The other flip side of that is some of these recipes, only a few, but some of them are pretty hard to make at home. And so they're saying you could make this at home if you want to spend two days on it, or you just come into our restaurant and you pay us to make it for you. <laughs> yeah. You, you have to go out and buy this very expensive piece of kitchen equipment that you're only going to use once in your life. Exactly. So maybe come in and eat. What did you learn from your experience of reaching out to these restaurants to, you know, sort of assemble these recipes and putting this book together? I learned nothing. <laughs> <laughs> One is that it always pays to start early. This ended up being a pretty quick process for putting together a book. It was eight months from conception to publication. And so I really did reach out to the ones I knew I wanted early but I was sort of struggling at the end to get the last few for it to round out 60 in that time. And so a lot of these chefs were interested in participating, but sort of blew through the deadlines that I gave them. And they're not my employees. They're not in my newsroom. I can't really, you know, do any enforcement or anything. I just have to ask them politely again to submit a recipe and see if there's anything I can help them with. I also think that one thing I learned from this I thought a lot of Sacramento Bee subscribers would want to buy this book because they already get my weekly newsletter or they read my food and drink coverage or they just saw the ads that the bee was running, you know, of the book before it came out. But as I've been doing book signings and Q&As over the last couple of weeks, so many of the people who come out will tell me that they're not Sac Bee subscribers. 
And for us, I think it's really a great way to reach those people who aren't interested in subscribing to the B and get their financial support and maybe, you know, get us in a little better of a position in their eyes so they might subscribe later. As I do the book signings, we also have an employee who's collecting names and email addresses if they might be interested in signing up for my newsletter or signing up for a subscription. So we're trying to hit it from multiple points there. And I think really that's been impressed upon me during this time that there's a whole audience out there that we haven't been able to reach as the Sacramento Bee newspaper, but that we're definitely reaching with a product like this outside of the daily news coverage. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the newsletter. How long have you been doing that? And about, you know, how big of an audience do you have for that? I think I started it in 2019. Each week it features a newsy food related item at the top. It'll feature a restaurant review and it'll feature some openings and closings from around town. And then it'll link to all the food and drink articles that myself and other B reporters have written in the last week. The reviews are then compiled at the end of the month as sort of a what I ate this month type of article. Last I heard, we have about 6,500 people signed up for the newsletter. And I think it's one of the more popular ones within the B or popular segments within the B. I've heard that our opening rate is something around 35 to 40%. That's really good. So uh, yeah, that was something I said I wanted to do a few years ago, just because I wanted to have a little bit more voice and a little more right to the real food lovers in our community, a lot of whom have signed up. Yeah, I do it every week, except when I'm on vacation and then we have someone else sub. What's nice about that is you get to have those conversations with you know the the chefs and the bartenders, the restaurant owners, but then now you have a platform where you can interact with foodies in your city, sort of expanding what you're doing with your, your food writing and connecting these different parts of the community. I think that's really cool. Again, somebody may be listening to this, somebody may be going to read what you're going to be writing about for the Better News initiative. You know, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to start a food beat or wanted to use that to sort of grow their engagement and expand their reach? Well, I can say that the Sacramento Bee has really seen a lot of people subscribe because of our food coverage. Local newspapers, local outlets, they're all about serving people in their community. And a lot of times people want to eat at local restaurants or try out the new hotspot down in this corner of town. And so, you know, this is news that people can really use. And I'd encourage more food writer jobs across, you know, big and small cities across the U.S., you can really tell a lot of stories through food, I guess. So, you know, I, my beat is food, but I also write a lot about race, about economics, about equity within the city. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of stories that can be told by having a restaurant or, you know, restaurant and bar reporter with their boots on the ground. A lot of the times, these are stories where the PR push, the press releases, that's what really gets out to a lot of outlets. But to have someone on the ground... I'm able to dig through that and find really interesting stories, highlighting communities that aren't always highlighted, sending people to places that they might not otherwise check out. I know I have a following that will just read my reviews every week and kind of form their list of where they want to go out to eat based on that, putting local dollars back into the community. So I think that there's a lot that can be gained for newsrooms by having a food and drink reporter, a food and drink beat. And I think it's great for the community as well. 
I've been talking to Benji Eagle, the Sacramento Bee's food and drink reporter, about his new book, Sacramento Eats. Benji, thanks for coming on the Better News Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Better News, a co-production of the American Press Institute and It's All Journalism. API's Better News Initiative offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. You can find out more about the Better News Initiative and this podcast at betternews.org.